What's up, y'all? It's Zach with Living Corporate. And man, it's another Tuesday, right? That's hopefully when you're listening to this, you know, you're not flying on a plane. Hopefully. Some of y'all are. I don't know why. I don't know why. Yes, I'm judging y'all. I don't know why you're flying on a plane. But some of y'all are, you know, doing that. Most of y'all are probably at the house, right? Getting used to your new normal still. Got your kids in the background. I can empathize. I can relate. I have Emery. She's only four months old, but still, you know, she's not breaking anything yet, but she wants to. But wherever you are, you listen to us and we appreciate that. You know what we do. We center and amplify uh, black and brown voices at work. And we do that by doing what? Having authentic, real conversations with black and brown elected officials, uh, thought leaders, pundits, activists, educators, executives, entrepreneurs, public speakers, authors, anybody, really, anybody who's really down to have an authentic, real conversation about what it means to be other or marginalized or one of the onlys. Uh, in a space, in a majority white space. And, you know, today is no different because we have Dr. Jason Johnson with us. Now, listen here, y'all. Dr. Jason Johnson is a professor, political analyst and public speaker. Johnson is the author of the book Political Consultants and Campaigns, One Day to Sell, a tenured professor in the School of Global Journalism and Communication at Morgan State University in Baltimore and politics editor at The Grio. Dr. Johnson is an extensive public speaking and media background ranging from pop culture to politics. Johnson is a contributor at MSNBC and has appeared as a commentator locally, nationally, and internationally. He's a former contributor at Al Jazeera English and HLN and has appeared frequently on CNN, Fox Business News, TV One, and Fusion. What's up, Roland Martin? I see you, man. Internationally, he's made multiple appearances on the BBC, CBC in Canada, and Russia Today. Professor Johnson is a contributor at Sirius XM Radio and provides regular commentary on the nationally syndicated Russ Parr Morning Show as well as local and national NPR stations. My goodness gracious, Dr. Johnson, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm glad to be here, Zach. That Apparently, you were about to talk to somebody very important, so I have to live up to all those phony words that were written by my staff. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so look, let's start off with this because I, I got some tea. I'm, look, oh, I got some tea. I like want to. I, I want to get into the tea, which you know you know you have the tea. So I'm. Oh, okay, so let's be clear. Okay, okay? this is going to be a mm-hmm. messy podcast, y'all. So y'all, I'm I'm going to be asking real questions because I'm I'm so excited. I'm going to get into this in a minute, but let's just let's start off easy and just talk about your journey into media. Like you're a whole professor out here. We talked about that, but yes. you're also out here. Like you, you know, your face is everywhere. You know, I saw you. You know, months ago, I remember. You know, you was arguing with Nina Turner. Right, and then you, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Roland Martin, just a couple. Yeah. Roland Martin, just and I, and I love you. I love you, Sister Turner. Like you, respected venerators is not not picking no sides at all. I'm just saying, I, rem, I you're out here is my point. And mm-hmm. then just a couple of days ago, Roland Martin was demanding that you show up back on MSNBC, and just and then, you know, just a couple of days later, I see you up on there. So I mean, I want to, I want to <laughs> understand, <laughs> I want to understand what it looked like for you to to develop this reach that you have. So I'll I'll go backwards and I'll say this. Um, It is extremely important for black people. And with this, the conversation that we're having now, right? This is the conversation we're having now in the wake of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd and Maude Arbery. And, and literally Zach, this has happened to me. I've been in the middle of like working on projects or articles or whatever. And like another name gets added to the list, another hashtag. So I I hope I'm not cutting anybody out, but especially in this time, it is so incredibly important that we have independent black voices out there with black owned or black run or black managed media outlets, because that is the only way that we can safely talk about uh, the plight and the experiences and the challenges 
that African-Americans are facing in media. You see there's a class action lawsuit by, you know, black reporters at the L.A. Times. Uh, there's stuff happening at Bon Appetit magazine, the Philadelphia Inquirer. Uh, the, uh, I think it's the Pittsburgh Gazette. I mean, you know, the, the article by Yashar Ali about ABC News. These issues are happening everywhere. And so when guys like Roland or Bakari Sellers with his podcast at The Ringer or anybody else, Joy Reid, um, when they amplify uh Black people in the media, it's important because we've got to be able to keep our voices out there. We've got to be able to protect each other. And that only happens when we have independent media outlets. Yeah. You know, you're one of the handful of black men on MSNBC. Yes. And you're also like, yeah, I'm I'm going to keep it there. You're one of the handful of black men on MSNBC. Well, keep going. Well, go wherever you want to (laughs) go. Okay. Well, so here's my thing. You're one of the handful of black men on MSNBC who, Mm -hmm. and, and frankly, like, you also are like you're like you're, you're, you're straight presenting and you're like direct in your commentary and language in yes. ways that is not common on media in media. Right. Like and just in yeah. media across the board. Right. So like when I think about of course, you have a handful of really great, incredible names over on ESPN. You think about like Howard Bryant, Bamani Jones, Dominic yeah. Foxworth, right. Clint Smith, I think like, you know, there's there's some people over there, but mm-hmm. in the political commentary arena, like there just aren't many black men, period, let alone like. Uh, I'm, I'm not trying to act like you're just some like macho jerk, but I'm just saying no, like, no. the presentation is pointed in that way. I think, right? Yes. And so what I know it? what you're getting at. <laughs> <laughs> so let me so let me say this. Let me say this because you know I believe in good trouble, yeah. and I be I believe in being honest. Yeah. So I am a straight black man in media. Okay, I I say that for identification purposes, and I'm going to say this is interesting. I was at NABJ a couple years ago, yeah, and I was on a panel. We were talking about diversity, and I said, you know, as a straight black man, blah blah blah. And you know, brother in the audience who's a member of the LGBTQA community was like, "Why do you say that? Why do you say that? Like, why is that?" And I said, "The reason that I'm saying that in this context of diversity is because allyship doesn't matter and can't be earned if we don't identify who we are." Right. It's true. Though. Like, yeah. yeah. Like when I talk about, you know, the, the, the queer brothers who, who, who I'm friends with, who I work with, who have supported me, who have had my back. It's important that you say, yo, I'm a straight black man. And this brother who is gay, this brother who is queer, this brother who is tan, he's he's my brother as well. Yes. I support him. I support his life. I support his choices. So yes. we have to be willing to identify who we are so that we put our privilege on the line to support other people who are being marginalized. So I say that also in the context of. Of, of being on the air and, and doing media work, there are not many black men, period, who are privileged to do what I do. Um, and I can say this because you want to talk about T, almost all of us know each other. Like, I'm not kidding. Like, like, you know, me and Eddie, Eddie Glaude and, yeah. and Malcolm Nance yes, and Ellie Mistel yeah. and like Bakari Sellers, like the vast majority of us all text, talk to each other or in message groups, because there's only like if you count paid and unpaid brothers on on CNN and MSNBC, because there are almost none on Fox. Right. Almost every single one of us knows each other because there's only about 15. Yeah. Straight up, though. It's not that many. Like, because yeah. even when you just think about in media, right, like across. Right. So and like when you talk about the mainstream platform. So, yeah, I mean, it. I, I'm, I asked that question because. I'm curious what it looks like for you to navigate your own frustrations and presentation on camera in moments when folks say things that you find intellectually dishonest or just just stupid. Right. Like, like 
and I ask because so I, it's interesting because I have I have friends who are like they engage in politics at the more local level. Right. And so like local news, local politics, you know, these quote unquote debates are rarely as like theatrical as the content <laughs> that we yeah. see. Because I talk and I, again, these are like people that I know. And, I, and I'm like, you know, that, I thought it was going to be like a, a boxing match. He's like, yeah, no, we're just regular. We're just having a conversation. Like, right. Right. Like the difference in opinions aren't typically on the local news channel like you know you t- if i if i go to abc amount like for houston the, or in austin like even you're talking about protests like somebody's gonna have a position another person's gonna have a different position and like while the positions may be different they're not being mm-hmm. presented like it's just a battle or brawl right right so that's because there's a couple reasons for that one because that ain't really how most people talk right and i'll give you i'll give you an example from my own experience so um I had a I had a viral video happen in 2017 and I was on the air with a guy. You can look it up uh, with a guy named Matt Schlapp. And he is the head of CPAC, like a conservative political action. Committee. I know who that is. Yeah. 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 And like <laughs> and we got into it. We got into it. And because Matt tried it, literally, he tried to get in my face. Um, he tried to get in my face. He was very hostile. He started lecturing me. He started pointing at me. And I'll tell you, because not only did it go viral, but like I. <laughs> You know, aunts, uncles, my friends, parents. I had so many people call me because, you know, as soon as you get off set, you turn your phone back on. Yeah. And so you don't know how it looks <laughs> until you turn on the phone. And people are like, yo, are you all right? Are you OK? <laughs> what happened? Like my my mom was afraid you were going to get fired. Like, like <laughs> that's how people responded to it. Right. And I didn't know how it looked. But I, I will know this. And this goes to when you talk about staying control, you know, and, and I think Matt was really hostile and I've, I've had interactions with him since. And I was like, nah, dude, like you were disrespectful. That's right. not cool. Right. And in, at CPAC, I think in 2019, he actually used an edited version of that video before uh, rolling out his introduction to President Trump. So obviously he was still feeling it. Come on. Man. Uh, but how did you maintain control? How did you not snap on him? Right. And I said, well, one, it's not that hard. That's not really my personality, right? Yeah. But two, it's like, you ain't ever going to get me to do something that's going to cost me coins, period. Right. (laughs) This is my job, right? Right. Like, at the end of the day, like, you're not going to cost me my job. If something ever costs me my job, I don't care if it's a student or my writing or whatever it is, it's going to be something I do. It's not because I get provoked. Uh, by some bad faith argument by someone who I have a vehement disagreement with. But I will also say this. Every single network operates differently. And it's, it's changing now. But I, I can tell you that, you know, from, from around 2010, 2011, even before we got to Trumpism, you know, there were certain shows. I wouldn't even say networks, but there were certain shows where that was their bread and butter. It was, yeah. okay, let's bring on a crazy borderline racist sometimes vehemently racist conservative person right put them on with a black person and just the host would sort of sit there just watch on some doc yeah on some dr evil peeking into their mouth like mm, i wonder what will happen <laughs> and then just and then just keep going until the black person snapped and then it would go viral right, right. and i never liked doing that sort of thing you talk about you talk about sports whatever i, I think one of the first most combative uh, situations I had was back in maybe 20, 2011, 2012. Okay. I was on with Will Kane. Uh, oh, and, okay. <laughs> and Will got really pissed with me because he said something like, you know, blah, 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 you boys, blah, blah, blah. And I said, Will, I'm not your boy. Right. And he was so mad that apparently right after the segment, he like 
he, he took off his took off his headphones like like, a, like the the soccer coach meme and was pissed and stamped out and whatever else it is. And I was like, bro, we ain't cool. You can't call me that on the air. You can't even call right. me that in person. Right. So sometimes it gets that way, but usually you just, you maintain self-control and professionalism. You recognize, don't let three minutes on the air affect the rest of your life. I mean, I think with that being said, like, can we just, I'm going to just give you some space to like, because mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm curious to get your perspective on like the moment that we're in. Right. Like, have you ever seen like such a collective call to awareness um, and, you know, in many ways, performative allyship oh, yeah. that we've seen today? Because this just seems like a, a wild confluence of events. I don't think we've ever had before. Not in my lifetime and not in any of our lifetimes. It's it's crazy. I mean, it's that old phrase, you know, uh, you know, may you live in interesting times. I mean, the last it, it's interesting. I'm a big uh you know, comic book, video game kind of guy, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And at the, literally this this afternoon, I was shopping. I bought a bunch of Funko Pops for my house. I collect black Funko Pops only and That's black right. action figures. That's dope. Um, but, you know, at this time last year, I was at Comic-Con. Yeah. I was at Comic-Con and, and, and doing hits on, on AM Joy. Um, and we were just talking about, you know, Cory Booker and, and what the Democratic 2020 race looks like. And now... We're under a pandemic that's killed 135,000 people. There is no federal plan in place. The uh, president of the United States is is trying to gaslight us by stealing information from the CDC. We're bombarded with with basically ritual uh, murders of black people by police officers and sometimes just random white vigilantes. And, uh, you know, even the 2020 primary in, in, in February and March feels like ancient history compared to where we are now. The, the, the real stress and danger is that nobody has any clue where this is going. This has had such a tremendous impact on everyone's life professionally from having to stay home to people losing their jobs. I think about the fact that, you know, I work in media. I'm a contributor at MSNBC. I do stuff for the grill, you know, right in a bunch of different places. And a lot of my friends and colleagues who are in production, the people who I knew in makeup, the people who I knew in styling, all those people are out of work now. Yeah. And even when the pandemic is over, they're not going to get their jobs back because once the networks realize, oh, wait, like people are cool with with watching somebody on Skype. Right. They're cool with you just filming from your house. Well, then we don't need to hire those producers and we don't need to have Zoom studios anymore. So mm-hmm. a lot about everybody's job has changed. And I even say that as somebody who's blessed to still have multiple jobs. Because there's a lot of people whose jobs have disappeared and are not going to come back. Yeah. No, I mean, it's just, it's just really bizarre. Like, how would you, I mean, especially when you think about the fact that we're doing, all this is happening in, in a presidential election year. Like, yeah. I mean, how would you define, like, just as you think about everything coming together from like, economically, politically, socially, like, I mean, I, I don't know, man. I, it, it just seems, I, I, I don't, I don't think that even, so we take ourselves out of this lifetime. I just don't think we've seen, this is a first for all things happening at the same time, I think. So it's not, but here's the scary part. Yeah. If I'm going to be honest with you, Please. it's based on a, a book I'm working on research. So uh, you ever hear of like, uh, you know, cyclical theory of history? Yes. Yeah. Um, if you look at the cyclical theory of history, this is just the beginning and it's really going to suck for another 40 years. If you look at what tends to, I mean, think mm. about it. We are a hundred years from the Spanish flu. 
Right. It's literally happening at the same time. We're a hundred years from Tulsa. It's literally happening at the same time. The 1920s yeah. up until the 60s weren't good. The 1820s until the 1860s weren't good for black people. Right. They were not. Right. Um, and so now are we in a unique position now? that we might be able to keep the next 40 years from being hot garbage. We are, we have more resources today than we did in, in 1920. We have more resources today than we did in 1820. But if history repeats itself, Mm. this will not be good. We tell ourselves that this is new because it ain't new, but we have to tell ourselves that there's ways that we can affect this future. There's economic and, and political and cultural ways that we can protect ourselves that we couldn't do in the past. Yeah, man, that's yeah. That's real. That's, that's just very, um, sobering yeah sobering that's a sobering <laughs> analysis <laughs> it is funny you asked about the cyclical nature of history like so the reason i it's just funny you bring that up one day and i promise no gas right because i'm actually like a pretty decent writer okay so like in, <laughs> in high school um my history teacher old white dude was like you know y'all can write a paper write a paper about anything mm-hmm. and it's extra credit mm-hmm. so i wrote a paper literally about i said i just think history repeats itself and i i didn't call it cyclical but i th- that was the the thesis of like the four page paper i wrote so the dude right. gets the paper dude is a, and this dude is a he's a history phd okay mm, so okay. he gets the paper and he's like ain't no way that you wrote this like <laughs> by yourself right so my mom at the time english teacher was like what she went up to the school had some words. My my English teachers at the school, it was a whole thing. So, and that's why I paused in saying it. Like I like I understand in my mind. I understand it's not new, but it's just I guess because you know we, we, you only had this one life that you live. So like it's hard for me right. to think that this could have ever happened again. But I hear you. It's just yeah, your analysis is uh, sad. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about the space you inhabit. So I saw you on MSNBC. I mean, mm-hmm. We kind of joked about that earlier about, you know, you were gone for a while. Glad to see mm-hmm. you on air again. Um, I think my frustration in this like really binary political premise that folks accept between like either you're a liberal or conservative is that sometimes how inflate black political thought, like all black political thought with liberal thought or right or, right. Way, or, or, or the other way around, whatever. But they aren't always the same, right? No, they're not. They're not. And this is this is what's funny. Like, I'm not a Democrat. I am not a Democrat. I voted in Democratic primaries, Republican primaries, but I'm not a Democrat. But depending on what network you're on and depending on what the, the sort of producer's desires are, you know, it's like the black person is always assumed to be to the left. Right. And the disturbing thing is that we live in a country where expecting all people to be treated equal and have equal opportunities for life, liberty and pursuit of happiness is somehow a left-wing idea. Yeah, that's crazy. We've moved so far to the right that, that the idea that black people shouldn't be slaughtered in the street by state-sponsored violence is somehow a liberal idea. That's the problem. You know, I would say that my politics, and, and you know, I'm, I'm a kid who, you know, I remember the Cold War growing up. Uh, my parents were in the military. My dad was in the military. And so I had a perspective on sort of war and combat and violence that I think a lot of American kids didn't have, right? Like, I grew up overseas. I grew up in Germany. I saw flatbed trucks with with missiles on them that would be sort of carried past our elementary school on base. I grew up on a military base. So, you know, we played shoot 'em up games like other kids did, but it was different. Like I, you know, I had nightmares about nuclear war because I was close to what war looked like. 
um, in a way that a lot of other people may not realize. You know, I never liked G.I. Joe, right? I was mm. more of a Transformers kid. You know, I yeah, yeah, believe yeah. in work with mass destruction. Um, but, <laughs> but, but, but the idea is that, you know, there's a lot more nuance to our politics uh, than people usually accept. And I'll, I'll give a perfect example. I was having this conversation um, with a colleague on a, a, a podcast a couple of days ago. We were talking about Nick Cannon. Right. And we were talking about like people who defended him. And I was like, this is what I mean by nuanced politics. One of the people defending Nick Cannon is Dwayne Wade. Now, Dwayne Wade has been this amazing advocate. Right. For his. Well, she Zara, you know, wants to be described as she. And like this guy is a super duper masculine top 25 basketball player of all time who walks around in fingernail polish and capris. Right. And will call his child she because that's how she identifies. Right. But at the same time, can defend some crazy hotepery. So you got to recognize <laughs> that black people. Yeah, I mean, like black people are complex, and you can't just say that that you know people are one thing. Like I've right. changed. I am now in favor of abolishing the police. I didn't feel that was being tear gas in Ferguson in 2014, but I feel that way now. Mm-hmm. So even our evolution of of politics and philosophies has to be taken into consideration. Yeah, I mean, because and it's it's frustrating, right? I I think you know you think about some of the positions historically that, first of all, just the fact that like even black political thought has like we have never, if you wanted to just like you know make us all one monolith, like there's a large swath of us who, if Republicans weren't like killing us, we would vote mm-hmm. Republican. Like a lot of us would. Like I have family members who identify more with some of the social values and uh, homophobic positions of uh, the GOP. But like at the same time, they're also like actively, you know, just being blatantly racist. I I think there's like this assumption that like we, you know, all black folks are in this like hyper, hyper far left camp. And that's just, that's just not the case. No, no. I, and, and let's, let's be fair. You know, you said that, you know, if they weren't killing us, that your family would be voting for Republicans. That's not true. And you know why? Because mm. Republicans don't want black people to vote. So your family wouldn't be voting. We wouldn't, period. That's true. Because, That's you right. <laughs> because, because they would be hitting you with voter IDs and and Taxes. shutting down your voting location. Yes. <laughs> I mean, and, and that's not hyperbole anymore. They're no. very explicit about it. I mean, right. the Republican Party has said we're going to challenge like, 15 to 20 percent of all mail-in ballots this year and you know they're not doing that in certain suburbs they're only doing that in majority black brown and young areas so um but i think that now the the state of public discourse Mm. has been so warped by the inability of most media outlets which are run by owned by um and edited by a certain class, um, a certain class of white people with a certain experience perspective, mm. they failed to adequately listen and warn and inform the public about how dangerous Donald Trump was because they didn't fully recognize or didn't want to recognize that white supremacy and white nationalism also has consequences for white people. They didn't mm. realize that, that you cannot have a government that is excruciatingly callous yeah. to the lie of black and brown people and still somehow magically be generous to all white people. It's not going to work that way. It never has. Right. And so 
because our media failed to listen to the people who are warning, because you had too many people who are like, oh, it can't be that bad. And look at Hillary's emails. And black people were considered to be alarmists for saying this guy is a white nationalist and we're in danger. That is kind of why where we are today. So it's not even a question of, well, blacks are far left or whatever it is. Black journalists and English were the canary in the mind. We were the ones saying all along, it's like, y'all are going to regret this. It's not cool. Right. And to be fair, the majority of America didn't vote for Donald Trump. Yeah. They didn't. Yeah. But the kinds of reporting that you saw in 2018 about voter suppression in, in North Dakota and Oklahoma and Georgia had those stories been covered in that way in 2016, we would have had a completely different America. I don't think Trump could have won if many white journalists and anchors had reported on voter suppression and put a spotlight on it in 2016 the way they did in 2018. And black people have been talking about that stuff for for ever since the Voting Rights Act was gutted. That's a decade. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, decades in general, but especially like once the Voting Rights Act was gutted, and and a lot of white journalists are like, ah, you know, you we're, know, and then we get past Trump. that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like it's not going to be that big a deal. How hard is it? You got to wait a little bit longer. It's like, no, like, you yeah. know, what you saw in Georgia was was bonkers. Absolutely bonkers. Those lines were so long, man. Yes. They had to put a, I saw. I, I know I looked at that shot. They put I saw the news. I was like, y'all had to use a drone for that because they were so high. Man. Like the shot was so high. They were just looking. The line went on forever. Like down, down the block across the corner. I was like, goodness gracious! You see a line that's down the block and around a corner in Atlanta. It's either one of two things: either people are lining up for lunchtime at Slutty Vegan, or they're trying to vote. Yo, it's shout one out of the two vegan. things. No ad. Yes, agree. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is not an ad. No, but you're right though. No. Um, yeah, <laughs> because it's like because I was like I looked at the line. I, I looked at the line. I remember, I, and it was you know, I, like most like a lot of millennials and Gen uh, and, and and Gen Zers too. I get my news on Twitter just because it's just so right. fast. And so I'm just looking at all these videos. I'm just like, this is this is crazy. Like, it's wild. I guess going back to your point around this, the cyclical nature of history, like y'all are literally suppressing our vote because yeah. y'all know a lot of us have hourly jobs. Some of us yes. just might be and some of us like, you know what? Some of us just might not want to wait in the line for three hours. Like, it's, and that's OK, I too. Like, I don't want to wait in the line for three hours. Look, man, like I said, I'm a comic book, you know, nerd, whatever it is. But right. like, I don't get waiting in line culture. I wasn't going to wait in line three and a half hours to see the new Doctor Who or, or the new Star Wars movie. Like, I ain't feeling it. I'll find it some other way or I'll just watch it in a couple hours later. Making people do that in order to vote. The pictures that you see in Texas and Georgia and North Carolina. And, you know, I think it's a testament to how targeted it is because I've never had to do that. Right. Uh, when I voted in Ohio, I would just walk across the street from campus. And yet what they used to do, what, what Republicans pushed through and what the government saw in Ohio was – they tried to stop college kids from voting by saying, oh, in order to get a voter registration card, you have to have some sort of utility bill, right? So yeah. that's crazy for college kids. It's we like I live in a dorm. utility bills. Yeah, that's yeah, I don't have a utility bill. So my campus literally, thank goodness to some of the activism at Hiram College, they literally would print out a utility bill showing what percentage of your tuition payment went to your utilities wow. and gave it to every single student so that they could register to vote. Wow. Wow. But you know, that was a small liberal arts college. It only had 1100 kids, but it's those same kinds of principles Yeah. of let's make it as hard as we can for a 20 year old. Who's like, yo, I, I can't go all the way back home to Columbus. Vote. This is crazy. 
right? It's a, yeah, it's I think like a like just like a like a really like I don't want to say nuanced function, but like a function of white supremacy is like just make up random rules, make up random rules <laughs> that you know ain't going that create just enough inconvenience or because you understand the bureaucracy of the of the of the situation that just right. block us right and that way you can say well we didn't really you know we wasn't racist we 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 had this rule and you know it just well, so so that's that's where the term institutional racism comes from right. because it's both things institutions by their very nature are meant to slow things down right <laughs> you know right. they're meant to make processes more complicated that's what institutions are for and so when you already have institutions that are built to grind down quick action and to perpetuate existing norms yes and then you add race to that that's why we have what we have our voting process is complicated anyway it's not like magically voting was easy in 1913 right it wasn't easy then either right right? you know you you couldn't vote if you were a woman you couldn't i mean they didn't make the price it's never been an easy process but when you throw in race then they try and make a darn near impossible and then you have people getting getting thrown in jail for voting in the wrong location or or being yeah. threatened you know by by militiamen who show up at the voting booth so you know all of those things come into play and we're going to see so much more of that before the year is out it's going to be a mess yeah i mean i shudder to think but it's, it's coming like you know what i'm saying like november like it's, we're getting closer to it every day i mean mm-hmm. you know a few weeks ago it was a few weeks ago van jones um, he said, uh, he said, you know, it's not the racist white person who's in the Ku Klux Klan that we have to worry about. It's the white liberal Hillary Clinton supporter walking her dog in Central Park. Um, and he was talking, you know, talking large, more largely about Amy Cooper, Amy Cooper and talking. Yeah. And also talking about like just this concept of like what racism is and like how it's mobilized uh, in more just like day to day ways in this country pertaining to that. Do you think that mainstream media talks a- about white liberal racism enough? Nope. And in fact, if you talk about racism amongst white liberals and you're black, you are subject to a lot more sort of retribution uh, and attacks than than white colleagues are. Yeah. Um, I mean, but that happens that happens to black people in general. But but here's the thing. It's not about white liberal racism or conservative racism. Mm. It's about talking about what racism actually is. And how it manifests itself and what it can actually do to people's lives and how you it's almost impossible to have these sort of structural racist beliefs in our day to day workings or our lives or our businesses and have everything else function. Um, You know, I'm I'm not you know, I'm not going to do some sort of holistic sermon here, Mm. but the same kind of racism oppresses white people in ways as well. Mm. Our our the kids who got killed in Parkland, right? The kids who've been killed in inner city schools who are mostly black. The the, the kids who were killed in, in in Columbine, right? Our gun culture in America is a direct result of racism. It is a direct result of the idea that white people are under constant threat, constant threat from emerging hordes of blacks or Asians or Latinos. And therefore, the idea is you must have a gun to protect yourself because death is the only way to deal with these these raging hordes of brown people. Right. But what does that result in? It results in a crazed gun culture in America that ends up disproportionately killing white people all over. Yeah. Right. So so what is a policy driven by an underlying racist attack on black people 
also ends up killing white people. White people don't understand how racism kills them too. And so when you talk about the media, mm. that's what I can go back to Trump. I don't think a lot of media people recognized how dangerous this would get because they really thought, oh man, Trump is racist and that's bad. But racism is going to be a black people problem or a Hispanic people problem yeah, or a yeah. Muslim people problem, not yeah. a white people problem. Well, no, I'm right there with you. And I think I think today in this moment, as you've been as, as we see all of this, all of the filmings of, of police brutality um, mm-hmm. on camera is I mean, even last night. So we're recording this on a Friday. So this was uh, yesterday, like, yesterday in Portland mm-hmm. was video of this of this white protester. Just got scooped up by these like uh, government. Un- yes, you saw that. And got thrown yes. in an unmarked van. I said, "What? The, yes, what the hell is going on here?" Or, and, or yeah. the cops, the cops who were just uh, the cops who were just slashing, popping tires of journalists oh, and people yes. in Minnesota. I mean, like that's the thing. Like racism is killing black people, right? At a at a tremendous rate and always has, but it's killing white people too. I think. If, the, if there's one thing that we've started to understand in this current sort of racial reckoning, it's that you're finally getting white people in a in a consistent way to be like, whoa, 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 whoa. Some of the systems that we thought were bad, but were just going to hurt others right. are now hurting us. Maybe this whole thing is a problem. So, OK, so this is kind of a silly question. I told you mm-hmm. it's going to be messy. And this is like this is my this is my messy question. Mm hmm. All right. How real are these black folks who be out here championing Donald Trump? Like Paris Denard. <laughs> like I just I don't I don't believe it. No, let's have the conversation. And if it goes wrong, <sighs> I don't care. I need to yeah, understand. Yeah. Like so I'm about to name the name. So Paris, so here's people that stick it out to me. Paris mm-hmm. Denard. Right. And I feel like to be honest, I feel like you and Keith Boyk and y'all y'all really be y'all really kind of treat Paris like he like the little annoying cousin that comes from out of town. <laughs> the way that y'all I've seen I see y'all on here and I see the I can pick up on things because you know, black folks, we can pick up on how y'all be. I, and I, oh, y'all, yeah. put the, y'all put the professional face on on that camera. But Simone to Simone be looking at him like, come on, Paris. When, when he before right. he moving on. So Paris Denard, Candace Owens, Diamond and Silk. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Like what? I mean, I know I know you just got back, so I'm not trying to get you in trouble. But like, oh, no, me, no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm fearless. Does Thomas <laughs> does. Do you think that Thomas Sowell looks at these folks like these are my kids? Like, like. <laughs> well the thing is like trumpism is a kind of cult that is different from being a republican right one of my favorite people is michael Steele. i think michael Steele is awesome i joke with him and tony harris those are those are two of the older brothers who i admire immensely them russ parr like you know but 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 michael in particular michael is a republican i i wrote about michael in my dissertation right i put him in my dissertation he is a republican um you know he was the head of the rnc during the obama administration but he recognizes that trump is crazy and a danger to this country and so it's not about black republicans i don't know a lot of black republicans who are okay with trump i mean they're not and i and i know some white republicans and the only issue they have with trump is they just think he's uncouth they're perfectly fine with his policies they just think he screws things up by saying the quiet part loud but a lot of black Republicans that I know, they're like, no, this man is crazy. He is dangerous, right? And that's why you've seen white and black Republicans who have left the party because of Trump. Now, I say that to say, I don't know Paris personally, right? Um, I think his politics are really strange. 
you know, it just it just doesn't seem to me to be grounded in much. Uh, Candace Owens, I do not know her. I've never met her. But I get people, it's funny, I have a really good friend in Atlanta, and he'll text me all the time, oh my God, she's saying Candace Owens says this is terrible. And I'm like, Candace Owens is powerless. Mm. She doesn't, I mean, does she, is she, is she an elected official? Right. Does she control budgets? Right. Is she passing legislation? No. So I don't pay attention to Candace Owens. I don't pay attention to Diamond. So because people like that aren't dangerous. You know who's dangerous? Ben Carson is dangerous. Ben Carson is dangerous. <laughs> Ben you know, Carson is Ben Carson is dangerous with his sleepy self, but yes, he is yes, dangerous. Yes. You know, the, the guy, you know, who 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 survived a robbery at a, a Popeye's organization, a fried chicken establishment. Like like ben, ben Carson is a dangerous man because he subscribes to elements of Trumpism and he has control over housing and urban development, which is an essential government agency to hundreds of thousands, if not millions of Americans. Yeah. So those are the people who I worry about. Now, when you want to talk specifically about media and you're like, all right, look, how many of these people are just playing or just doing play play for TV? Yeah. So this is the thing about that. There are people, see, it, it depends because I think Paris Denard is sincere. That's why He really believes this stuff. I disagree with him, but he believes it. Right. Yeah. And so there's a certain peace that you can have with that. Um, as far as people who I think are faking it, you know, I don't I don't know many because so many of so many Trumpists have fallen out of favor. Right. You know, that it's sort of like, eh, I don't know, like Katrina Pearson. Yeah, Do I think Katrina Pearson believes that stuff? No, I think Katrina Pearson is a hired gun because she was a campaign spokesperson. Right. I don't know if she really believes all that stuff, but that was her job. You know, I, Omarosa, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, Omarosa was close to Trump and worked in the administration. But I always said, you know, and I, I've known Omarosa, like I met her years ago. You know, Omarosa was doing what she thought was, you know, what was going to help the country. Right. Right. And, and help her. And, and, you know, and if you read, you know, several books, I mean, she tried to get a job on the Clinton campaign. So it's not like she was a full Trumpian. She just went there because she's like, all right, I'm going to join the winning. Side. So, yeah. you know, now you start getting down to the, um, you know, some of these YouTube, you yeah. know, crazy pro-Trump black people. Yes. If you start really going, <laughs> yeah, you start really going down that rabbit hole. I'm like, most of those, most of those folks are just hustling. We're just hustling. Yeah, because yeah, because I just um I, I just find it, I just find it hard. To, it, it's hard to stomach, right? To look, and like now I will say a guilty pleasure of mine because I don't, mm-hmm. I don't watch um I don't watch UFC because it's too it's too bloody. But I do like some of the theater of watching like when uh, Mark Lamont Hill and Paris Denard would argue, or when Keith Boykin would rip somebody up. I enjoy right. that. I I have looked at the clip with you and Matthew Slap. I look at it every now and then. Like it's those, <laughs> that content. The content to me is like the same feeling I get when I listen to like, um, like uh, when uh, Dipset did the freestyle in uh, in the basement. Like I like it's like kind of like a rap. It's, it's I, I enjoy that. Uh, but it's, <laughs> but but I don't I don't think but I don't think it's healthy. Right. It's just mm-hmm. it's just fun. To, it's it's good to it's it, it's fun to engage. But here's I it's, guess cathartic. My, it's cathartic. cathartic. It's cathartic. That's the word. It's cathartic. So. But my challenge is, it's just that when I see it and I talk to my people about it, it's like, y'all, these people just cannot be real. Like, how can you come up here and defend that? But that makes now look, you said you said Michael Steele. So I will say and I understand you're saying about Michael Steele being a Republican, but 
he kind of also I'm curious about that about that space too because it seems like every time something racist happens within the GOP, Michael Steele comes out and he's surprised like every time. <laughs> and Tim Scott too for that matter. Like every time. <laughs> like, I wouldn't put them in the same category though. <laughs> I wouldn't like. I got to defend Mike because Mike, I, I, like I said, I like him. He's a really good guy. Um, yeah. Here's the thing. I can't speak for him, but I but I will say this in conversations that I've had with him about these kinds of issues. I don't know that I would characterize it as Michael Steele is surprised by racism within the Republican Party. I've had plenty of conversations with him about these issues. I think what would be a, a more fair characterization is, you know, there are times that black Republicans are surprised by the racism of of fellow Republicans who they have worked with, who they know personally. So it's not an institutional, yeah. oh my gosh, I can't believe there's in this establishment. Right? <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, is there actual prostitution here? Right. I think it's more like, yo, I worked with you. Like, yeah. you've you've been at my house. Like, yeah, I know that there's racists out there, but I thought you and I were cool, or at least I thought that you had more tact, decency, or perspective than that. So I think that's now, now mind you, I'm a living, you know, paint the fingernails emoji. I'm like, oh, for real? Yeah. For real? You just found us out? <laughs> you know, but, you know, I, but I don't work in those spaces. And right. it's interesting. So I'm, I'm going to take you back a little bit. Please. It talks about like discovering and dealing with racism. Yeah. So, um, do you remember that video, the viral video, Jesus, years ago now? And forgive my language, but it was a uh, white girl say to black girls. Yes. You remember that? Yes. yes. You remember that viral video? Yes. And it was Francesca Ramsey, right? Yes. And so I, I remember all these people were watching that. And it was like, oh, my God. And, and it, was, it was good. And people had all these discussions. And Francesca went on Anderson Cooper and everything else like that. And I remember writing about it at the time. I don't know if I was at, I don't know what media outlet. It might have been Luke. 21 it might have been uh politic 365 i don't know but i remember writing at the time i said you know i found the video interesting i found it compelling it was parts of it were funny i said but parts of it were unfamiliar with me why because i don't have those kinds of white friends <laughs> right <laughs> it's like my white real. friends aren't racist right and my white friends who are racist they know it so like, right. it's, it's something that we talk about so i'm right. like that's the part that gets me people who are surprised by people that they know like i don't socialize with white people who are vehemently over the top can't see my humanity racist so i don't have these experiences of being of being shot you know i don't yeah. have and, and you talk about this larger issue of oh we're in this time of racial reckoning and everything else like that mm -hmm. i i was uh i i got involved in a hashtag a couple weeks ago called uh Blind ivory I don't know if you saw this. I did see that. Yeah. Yeah. And and people were tweeting about, you know, what their experiences were like as black people in academia. I did a whole thread about the institutional and the individual racism that I dealt with getting my doctorate at UNC Chapel Hill and named names. Right. Wow. And people were kind of shocked. I got reached out to by my department. Hmm. Um and, and, and they were like, oh, my God, we didn't know this. We'd like to talk to you, blah, blah, blah. And I told this story about how, you know, my dissertation advisor um, was <laughs> had some very, very racist beliefs mm -hmm. that he at one point told a graduate student, you light skinned blacks aren't any smarter than the dark ones. And I want to make sure that you know that 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 was my dissertation advisor. Goodness gracious. Okay, I mean, but so, blacks ain't no smarter than the dark ones, though. But that's but right, that, exactly. But but, exactly. but the con but the context of that though was bad. But yes, I got you. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. 
and, and, that, and that was kind of the whole thing. It's just like, I wasn't surprised to hear that. Right. I wasn't surprised that he was a bigot. The fact that the institution was shocked at this kind of behavior and shocked that this is what people dealt with, that's the part that was funny to me because it's like, you know, well, if you empowered black and brown people and gave them even a semblance of protection and stake in this institution, you wouldn't be shocked by these things. So whether it's academia, media or business, black people ain't shocked by what's going on. I think white people are. And that's the big difference we're facing today. You know, it's funny you talking about black and Ivory. So I remember when I like only Uche Blackstock, Dr. Blackstocks, they were tweeting about it. And there's one thing I'm surprised you didn't tweet about when you when you're using that hashtag was when after you made those comments about Bernie Sanders and Nina Simone, all the people got in your Twitter on your mm-hmm. Twitter at talking about how, how you must be a terrible professor making a bunch of they, like it was a bunch of uh, white folks in your mm-hmm. mentions questioning your competence as a professor um, if you were even if you even should have had a PhD in the first place right so there's a couple things that I'll say about this and I, it's really key one the first time you know I, I can always tell uh, sort of bigotry I can always tell um, sort of racialized hostility when they go after my doctorate because that's the thing that, that they can't stand. They cannot stand because I, that ain't what I lead with. That ain't what I lead with personally or professionally. Right. I happen to have a doctorate in political science from UNC Chapel Hill. My focus is on campaign management and political communication, but people get angry about that. And so that's what they attack first. The second thing that I'll say is this, and this is, I think, important. I think this is going to be one of the stories that we should never forget about the 2020 election season, which is the importance of, of identifying bad faith outrage mm. that is used to silence powerful black voices. Okay. Mm. And, and that's what we've got to deal with because whether it's the far right or the far left, right? A black person says something in, in bad faith outrage, if people don't understand what that means. Mm. You look at what happened with Al Franken. Yes. Oh, so you yeah, remember years yes, ago, yes, it was yes. like Al Franken was had been sexually harassing women, doing inappropriate stuff. He claimed it was a joke, right? Mm-hmm. And Republicans went nuts. They, they were like, went, oh, my they God. Went, they went super, yeah. they went, ironically, super left on him. Yeah. They right. They were like, oh, my God, you Democrats, you're terrible. You're, you got to do something about him. He's so awful. <laughs> yes. And the Democrats got together and kicked out Al Franken. Quickly, right? too. At, at my Quickly. Like, boom, done. You're gone. Now, then 18 months later, the Republicans were all rallying around Donald Trump. Right. Who had just been bragging about sexual assault on a bus. Right. Who had been bragging about sexual assault. And the Democrats are like, wait, what? And the Republicans are like, oh, wait, you fell for that? <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, wait, wait, right. we, you fell for that. Right. We, we're going to weaponize your values against you in bad faith. We don't believe in it. Right. But we're going to try and catch you up in it. Right. Right. And so you see a lot of that on the far right and the far left. Not because there's a sincere belief, but because you can weaponize these values to shut up people that you don't like. So a black commentator says something critical about Trump and all of a sudden are like, that's racist. That's terrible. And then, you know, that black person is 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 pulled off or removed or has to be quiet or I mean, you know, what what happened to to Van Jones in the Obama administration? Bad faith outrage. He gets kicked out of the administration. Yeah. The far left has done that as well. And so when we look back at 2020, we have to recognize that there are people who aren't really interested in public discourse unless it is coming from the voices that they like. And it goes back to what we said at the beginning of this conversation about the assumption that black people are on the far left. Right. Yeah. It's like 
there are people who believe that if you are black, if you do not align with a certain ideology, then you are a danger. And in fact, you are more an apostate than a black person who's a conservative. And they'll come after you. And yeah. we have to be we have to be conscious of sort of bad faith outrage. So that that's that's my sort of thing from that. You know, it, it's doing this kind of work. You take responsibility for your actions, um, you know, but we also have to recognize that black people are targeted. They are targeted for what we say. And we are we are attacked and targeted for what we say much, much more, much, much more than white people who make similar and sometimes worse mistakes. I'm right there with you. Now, look, I've stated this a few times. You know, I don't think that Trump is losing in November. I don't. Um, okay. Okay. So now I'm curious from, in your mind, what are the immediate and long term implications of him staying in office like during a global pandemic and one of the most like economically dire situations we've had in, you know, almost 100? Do you think enough urgency? Do you think there's been enough urgency around this moment? And do you think the Democratic Party has managed this election season well? So there's a bunch of that. So I'm going I'm, to I'm unpack that a couple of ways. Yeah. One, the, the, Donald Trump cannot get reelected this fall <clears throat> unless he cheats in a drastic, massive way. And, and I have to always say that. And here's why. Yeah. I mean, one, he lost the popular vote by three million in 2016. Um, you know, he he. True. He, he got hammered across the board in 2018. Hmm. The economy is now garbage. He has mismanaged a pandemic that has cost 135,000 people their lives, bankrupted 35 million people, that is laying waste to entire communities and, ha- and has no color, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and then on top of that, he is running a white man. And Donald Trump's strategy his entire rise in politics has been grievance against the ascent of women and black people. He's always running against either Hillary or Obama. Yep. He doesn't really have strategy for how to run against a white guy. <laughs> he doesn't. It's true. And, and that's why, that's how he got impeached. He was always afraid of running against Joe Biden because he's like, I can, Donald Trump, Donald Trump can give nicknames, can change your brand, but he knows branding. The man is brilliant at branding, and he knows I can't do anything to damage Uncle Joe. People have known him for eight years of Obama, and I know I'm not going to be able to change that. So I got to I got to come up with this whole scheme to try and damage him, and then that didn't work, and he got impeached for it. So the so the first thing is like he's really not in good shape to get reelected, and then the second thing is this. In order for him to win this fall, the cheating he's going to have to do is going to be so massive and so disruptive that I don't know that he'll be able to pull it off. Look, Joe Biden is leading in Pennsylvania by 13 points. Even if we cut that in half and Joe Biden has a seven point lead heading into Election Day. And remember, we're not going to have the president on Election Day. We won't. Because you're going to have too many ballots coming in by mail. So we're not going to know the president for weeks, yeah. weeks and weeks and weeks. And you're going to have people fighting. You're going to have Trump challenging. You're going to have militia people showing up at, at polling places and counting places. But if Joe Biden is leading Pennsylvania by seven, there's no way in heck that Trump can say, I want it by 0.5%. People will riot. They'll riot. 
they'll be too unhappy. He could pull this off in 2016 because Hillary was only leading these states by one or two percentage points, and it was all within the margin of error. Trump's losing is not going to be within the margin of error. So I, I say that to say, of course, it's possible for him to be reelected, <laughs> but it's going to be really hard. Yeah, it's going to be really, really hard. And I think he's I think Joe Biden's going to get about 40 percent of the white vote. And if he gets 40 percent of the white vote, Donald Trump is done. I love the prediction. I hope it's true. I mean, I don't traffic in hope. <laughs> I don't. I don't traffic in hope. I traffic in like this is what the numbers tell me. Right. And you know, and I I think now could this change? Of course it could change. Sure. You know, but unless there's a miracle cure to this pandemic <laughs> that they hand out free to everybody. You got a lot of people who are going to be who are going to be really angry and they're going to vote this guy out. So, do you think the Democratic Party put the best candidate forward? Um, probably. Given the people who are running, probably. Yeah. I said this all along. Let's look at the top three, yeah, four candidates, right? Okay. Um, I think Donald Trump's greatest fear was either Harris or Biden. I really do. Okay. He feared Harris because he was like, oh my gosh. If America, if, if, if Harris wins the nomination, then that means America has not been turned the way that his rampant bigotry is. You know, if America is willing to nominate a black woman to run against Trump, then that means the Obama coalition is getting the band back together plus plus Hillary. Yeah. Right. So he feared Harris. That's where all that Edo stuff came from. Yeah. yeah, right? yeah. Really wanted to knock Harris out of the race. So but but I but I always thought it was going to be a tough slog for Harris. Um then you go to Elizabeth Warren. I think Elizabeth Warren is a fantastic candidate. Um, yeah. I think she had probably the best ideas, the best combination of enthusiasm and engagement. Yeah. The issue with Elizabeth Warren is she's a woman, and there are lots of people who are still sexist and didn't want to vote for her and, and didn't think that she'd be able to handle Trump. Because um, that's that's who we voted for. Like I, I really felt like she was the strongest candidate. Yeah, yeah, lots of people. Lots of people. Did. Yeah. Then you have Bernie Sanders. I always said this is the biggest danger of Bernie Sanders. When you have a president who is unpopular, the re-election campaign is always going to be a referendum on Trump. And if Trump is is unpopular, which he is, then that means it's most likely he's going to lose, right? Right. If you had Trump versus Bernie Sanders, it would have been a referendum on capitalism. Mm-hmm. It would have been a referendum on the entire functioning of the American economy. And I don't know. That's a coin flip. Right. 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 That's a coin flip how that works. So so I always thought that was a risky proposition. I was like, because Americans love them some capitalism. <laughs> it's, you true. Know? it's true. I mean, even even if it even as it kills us, even as it starves our children, even as it it leads to NBA, you know, going into a death ring to entertain us and entertain advertisers and Budweiser beer. Americans, <laughs> it's, it's insane. It's insane that I'm a I'm a basketball and football fan. Um, so I always thought that that was that was the, the danger of right? right. And so then you get to Biden. You know, Biden is probably the best candidate because he's got the best chance of winning. He was the one Trump was afraid of. Yeah. You know, so is Biden going to be the best thing for America? If you find the best thing for America down to who can get Trump out of office, then probably. But what he does once he's in, it's anybody's guess. All right. Now, look, this is my last question. And and, mm-hmm. and I appreciate you 
Let me read this tweet by No Name. Uh, okay. No Name is a, a well-known rapper, singer, and a grassroots organizer, influence in Chicago. She has a reading club, uh, really focused on black uh, liberation. We can't vote out colonialism. We can't vote out imperialism and racial capitalism. Those things can only be uprooted through a revolution via mass solidarity amongst all oppressed people. Read and link up with radical orgs in your community. State violence is democratic and Republican. Mm-hmm. So here's my question. How real do you think this recent like publicized push for revolution is because I, I want it to be real. I'm over this. Um, and I, I, you know, I like to think that folks in my generational cohort are disillusioned with oppressive systems, but I'm curious to get, I think we're in different, I think, cause I think you're like, you're like a Gen Xer, right? Dr. Johnson. Yeah. I'm okay. So like, okay, cool. So we're, so we're like, you know, different generational spaces. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm curious to get your, your perception of this. So, what is happening in this country right now is a testament to how flimsy, disingenuous, and hollow what most calls for revolution over the last 15 years in American politics really were. Because this is a revolution. We've had candidates call for revolutions. We've had, you know, uh, certain kind of activists call for revolution. But what we're seeing now is a real revolution. And it is sustainable. It is consistent. It has led to changes that are actually substantive. Um, And I think it's going to be effective. Um, Whether or not we will be able to break the grip of capitalism on America, like I said, I don't think that's going to happen. Americans are wedded and committed to capitalism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're just, they're not going to give it up. They're not going to give up that drug. Yeah. Um, And, and, and the people who are most, and I cannot believe I'm saying this, but the people who are most oppressed by capitalism are the people who are oftentimes the most wedded to it, mm-hmm. right? Black people, black people love them some capitalism too, even though true. we have been the victims of it it's because true. we were brought here as commodities. Yeah, it's true. Um, so do I see that kind of revolution happening? Maybe not now, maybe in this next 40 years of hell that we're going to go through, right? Assuming I'm around to see all the rest of it. Um, But in the short term, yes, you have people marching in the streets. You have people of all colors marching in the streets. There was never going to be a revolution in America did not center black people. We were never going to have a revolution based on religion. We were never going to have a revolution based on class. We were never going to have a revolution based on region. It has to be centered on the very people who are at the genesis of the greatest evils in this country. And that is black folk. Mm. And so the fact that this revolution has started based on the state sponsored and vigilante murders of black people means it is possible. It's finally starting from the right place. And this is not to slam Occupy Wall Street or anything else like that. But America isn't, you know, America runs on Duncan and America runs on race, right? (laughs) Like you can, you can do class-based revolutions in countries that are much more uh, racially and religiously homogenous. Yeah. Yeah. But if you have a heterogeneous country and a multicultural country where all of the capitalism is driven by the sort of oppression and the commodification of of black and brown bodies. Yeah. You can't start the revolution if you don't start with the protection of those black and brown bodies. I love it. Uh, Dr. Johnson, this has been an incredible conversation. Yeah. Now, look, for wrap up, man, I typically try to give mm-hmm. folks a little bit of space 
Any <laughs> any pass any parting words or shout outs you got before we uh, we get up out of here? Uh, so I want to encourage everybody out there. This is what everybody needs to remember. We're at a really really critical time in black media. Every single black person that you see on television, you need to support them. You need to email networks. You need to tweet them. You need to read their articles. You need to support them because they're in a time where the only way that we're going to get to the bottom and get true reporting on some of the issues we're facing right now is by supporting and, and galvanizing the public behind the ideas that black and brown people have been talking about. We would not be getting the reporting that we're getting about George Floyd and police violence now if it weren't for the, the generation of people, Jelani Cobb, Aaron Haynes, uh, Wesley Lowry, you know, uh, Jamel Bowie, if it weren't for that generation of people who came out of Ferguson, I, you know, I, yes, I guess I, I, I came out of Ferguson too, Mark Lamont Hill. Yeah. If it weren't for these voices, we wouldn't even have the groundwork to talk about what we're talking about today. But there will always be forces that want to silence those black voices. So it's not just good enough to say, I like this person on TV or I read this person's article in the Philadelphia Inquirer. Mm-hmm. You got to buy their books. Buy Tiffany Cross's book. Buy Zerlina Maxwell's book. Read the articles by Ellie Mistel in The Nation. Make sure you are out there supporting black journal every single shape, way or form that you can. Because our ability to stay in this fight and say the th- things that are uncomfortable, but say the things that are important that this country needs to live, it needs in order for us to survive is dependent upon folks coming to our aid. That's why I'm where I am today. And it's where the rest of us will have to be if we're going to continue. Incredible, man. It's like you do this on a national platform all the time. It's, it's beautiful. Uh, Dr. Johnson, it's been a blessing, been a pleasure. Y'all, this, you know what we're doing? Like every single week we do this. Right? Hello, Beyonce's internet. I'm not about to give you all the domains. You know, we're at Living corporate, just type us in, we'll pop up. Until um, next time, y'all, it's been Zach. You've been listening to Dr. Jason Johnson, political contributor, pundit, speaker, educator, and uh, overall dope dude, man. Catch y'all later. Thank you, man. I appreciate it. <laughs> Peace. Living Corporate is a podcast by Living Corporate LLC. Our logo was designed by David Dawkins. Our theme music was produced by Ken Brown. Additional music production by Antoine Franklin for Musical Elevation. Post-production is handled by Jeremy Jackson. Got a topic suggestion? Email us at livingcorporatepodcast at gmail.com. You can find us online on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and living-corporate.com. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned.